None of us can do this on our own. And so it's really through partnerships and working across boundaries and finding those differences as much as our commonalities to tackle some of the bigger challenges that we're facing. People are doing this out of love. We don't talk about that very much, but that's why people are in this business, because they love nature, they love a particular place, they love a particular species or type or birds or something. They, it's a human attachment to something. My biggest goal is imagining somebody 200 years or 300 years from now, like thinking, I'm so glad they did this. I'm so glad that they had the foresight to do what is not possible to do today. You're listening to Climate Hot Seat with Amanda Sesser. Thanks for joining another episode of Climate Hot Seat with Amanda Sesser. Today, my guest is Dr. Jeff Burgett, and we're going to be talking about climate adaptation, specifically in the Hawaiian Islands. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for joining us. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Jeff Burgett. I'm a biologist that's been working on climate change issues in the Pacific Islands for 10 years or so. What do you see as being the biggest challenge for adaptation professionals? To me, one of the central problems with adaptation is that the people that are, are thinking about it and trying to, for natural resources especially, and cultural resources as well, is that um, what they're looking at is the loss of most of the things they care about. And especially the farther you look into the future, the more loss you see. So, um, you know, for instance, uh, I work in Hawaii and there's a lot of cultural um, uh, really critical cultural resources that are fixed in place and they're in near the ocean because that's where people live and have lived for a thousand years and so there's all of these things that are really important to the local people um, they're both you know things like petroglyphs and um, temple platforms and stuff like that that is right near sea level and there's also um, uh, cultural practices the, on Kauai there's these salt drying areas that are like been used for generations upon generations and everybody goes there and teaches their child how to make salt and pa'akai it's called sea salt um, and so that's really a part of culture and and you know anybody that looks at the, the sea level rise models sees that all this is going away and it's going away within 50 60 100 years and so your grandchildren will not even know what that is um and that is what really stops people from i think really grappling with it because it's not like how can you create a better future these things are inexorable and it's just like it's it's the slow change that you cannot stop global climate change is something we can modify the trajectory a little bit if we really work hard but so much is already in motion that when you start to talk to people about really what the long-term future is it's so depressing um, and there's so much loss involved that people I think for managers especially managers of natural resources you tend to look on the very short term and the argument is very similar to that with um, working with endangered species has always been. It's like, well, I don't know what's coming 100 years from now, but 
if my thing still isn't alive by then, it doesn't matter. So I have to keep it alive until that future. Um, and so for things that are, are sort of like unpredictable, um, you know, uh, disease or something like this, then yes, you keep got to keep that population going and healthy and maximize the number of individuals, all these things that you do to manage populations and, and resources, because if it's not there in the future, then nothing can, that happens then can save it. But when you are looking at constant change with, you know, it's a very, well, it's not exactly linear, but it's monotonic. They call it. It's got only one type of curve. Um, you know you can predict pretty well it's just a, it's not a question of what's going to happen it's just when it's going to happen and people don't like to think about things that they can't change that are inevitable that's like death we don't talk about death we don't think about death because it's inevitable you can't do a damn thing about it you know so so you just don't talk about it and adaptation has that same problem you're adapting to things that you cannot change and nobody likes to do that but so what's the alternative then if, you know, I, I, I definitely get what you're saying and, it, and it's a, it's depressing and, it, and it's hard to think about something you've put your entire career in or, you know, your heart and soul, blood, sweat and tears into something that may not be there in next generation. So, you know, one thing that I think about a lot is what's the alternative do we just ignore it and go on business as usual or can we think about systems rather than individual species you know i, I do think that there's a way you know out of the clouds i guess to, to say that you know if you think if you think in systems approach you might think okay we're going to try to maximize species diversity might not be the same species but we're going to try to maximize diversity, and diversity is one of the things that makes the Hawaiian Islands so unique in, in the global system is just the sheer diversity that's there. And, and so do you hear people, you know, talking about that? Or, you know, another way to put this is if a species is going to go extinct and you're still putting millions of dollars into it, is there are there other species that are less vulnerable but very important for the ecosystem, for the function of the ecosystem that we could be working on? And uh, do you hear any of those conversations? Those are big conversations. The problem is that our legal system and the conservation paradigm does not allow for triage, as we call it, you know, the battlefield practice of saying somebody's too gone to save, um, mainly because that model is dependent on resources. So the battlefield medic only has that one bag of stuff. And so you can spend it all on one guy or save 10 people if you make that choice to let that person go. So, so it's a resource problem. And as resources are shrinking, that conversation becomes more and more difficult. But I think the central problem with, with conservation in that way is that people, people are doing this out of love. We don't talk about that very much but that's why people are in this business because they love nature they love a particular place they love a particular species or type or birds or something they it's a human attachment to something and so an ecosystem or biodiversity or flows or ecosystem services you, nobody loves those things they don't have that connection it's an abstract 
So you can work on trying to convince yourself, but you'll never, you'll never have that. I just love this thing, you know? So, so it's, it's a human grief process. Then there's ways to manage that. And people throughout people's lives, they learn to do that. Um, but our agencies and our, the, the meetings you go to, there's not a lot of discussion about managing grief. And I think it's interesting what you said a few minutes ago about about death and our society doesn't talk about death. You know, if you look at indigenous cultures or Asian cultures, death is, is embraced as just part of life and people talk about it. And there's a lot more social support in terms of helping us through that grief. And, it, and it's not, you know, ignored. And I think that what you're talking about here with this grief process and when you go to conferences and people aren't talking about it, you know, by ignoring it, it, it's probably making it worse. Well, yeah. I mean, even, even American society, you know, a hundred years ago, people died at home. I mean, there was medical care was kind of bad and, and death was common. And there's a series of rituals that help people through that social rituals. Um, and and those are really critical to they've they've developed they've evolved because it's of the need and because they work. Um, we haven't developed that. We don't have that. Um, our we're the we're the emergency room physicians of the natural world. We're there. You know, it's a crisis driven discipline, and we're 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 there to save it. You know, um, when you find out you can't save it, um, you can only make you can make a choice between not doing something or retreating or ignoring the problem like you described or the the of shifting your focus to something that you can save but and that's where we need to go but that involves that first step of letting go of the things you can't save and that's what we need to find a way to do in a way to support each other through that because that is excruciating and and until we develop a way as a as a as a community of practice for conservation to say we mourn the loss of X, um, it it sh- this is wrong. You know we we understand that it's wrong. We will celebrate it forever. We will do whatever we can to keep it alive in some non corporeal sense. But we have to do. We have to make the future better then it will be if we just focus on that we have to we have to choose the alternative that is better and the problem with climate change and these these inexorable changes is your choice isn't between a bad future and a good future your choice is between a bad future and a slightly less bad future or less sucky future you know you you can't make the world happy and bright again for your thing because it's not going to be that way and you but you, you do have the responsibility as a professional and as somebody who loves this stuff to do what you can to save as much as you can or shift your focus to be more effective. If you're not effective, you're actually kind of betraying what you're, what you're there to do. Yeah, and I, I think about it. So I see a lot of islands, influence, islands thinking, system thinking. Um, in the way that you're describing that. In other regions that aren't um, a couple dozen meters above sea level, <laughs> we, we try to get stakeholders. Yes, there, there undoubtedly will be things that are caused by climate change, impacts of climate change, that put people at risk, 
make people vulnerable or species or habitats at risk or vulnerable. But some things will be, get better. And, you know, in interior Alaska, we often talk about um, the ability to grow our own food and not be as dependent on shipments coming in from the lower 48, which make us vulnerable as a society. If those shipments stop, then what happens to the population? Uh, so there are good, there's good things and bad things associated with these futures, these unknown futures. And I do think that as natural resource professionals and as people who work with communities, human communities, that we can direct some of those changes towards the things that, that are desirable and, and hopefully away from things that are undesirable. But on an island system, it's quite a bit different because when you're dealing with sea level rise and, and the, the loss of land, so just for, for cultural values, like you were saying, for natural values, for species, for habitats, it, it, it's, it is a little bit more depressing, I have to admit. Well, the, being a, a biologist in Hawaii is good training for learning about climate change because it's just kind of a, a continual onslaught of invasive species and the loss of native species, and you're just kind of, you get toughened to that. Um, but that, those are still, those are fights that you can fight, you know. If rats are eating your thing, you can build a rat fence and, you know, declare victory for now and and feel great but you know you can't build a fence against drought you know you can't you can't do the things against those inevitables but um but i think you're right the the in in larger systems where things are moving across the landscape there there will be change but it's it's not it's not necessarily loss it's that things have moved around and and you are um you're able to see, you know, some good, good things out of that. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I always tend to say, but there's all this bad stuff, but, but no, that is definitely true. Um, the problem there is that a lot of those things can't move fast enough across the landscape on their own. So we're tasked with an, an additional pro issue of, of whether to move things intentionally and you may screw up, but if you don't do that, you know, your system won't, won't prosper so there's a lot of work to do but i think we just have to, we haven't as a discipline decided what that we actually need to do that um there's a lot of people that you know aren't on board with changing anything well and the conservation ethic that has you know come from the 60s and 70s and in this country has been that naturalness is good that humans oftentimes are bad and that we have to be hands-off and allow nature to be natural and that what you're just talking about you know I hear a lot in, con in conversations about the Anthropocene that nothing's natural anymore because we are messing with everything in, in the entire climate system and so it's our responsibility to take a more active role in this age of non-naturalness. The world is no longer natural I mean we have changed just about any aspect you can you can of the world you can find has been changed already so, man, it's our footprint that's doing it. So, yeah, you're right. We have, I think that, that just says we have now taken on responsibility inadvertently for the future of the, the earth. And that's beyond, frankly, that's beyond any of our current philosophies, um, which are medieval in origin or, or, or early enlightenment. That's where we formed our ideas. We, we have no philosophical structure 
or, or societal structure that's up for the challenge here. We have to invent a new way of thinking. And something you said earlier, that we don't have the laws that allow us to do triage. And immediately I thought of the Endangered Species Act. It requires us, mandates us by law, that we must take care of these species and keep them from going extinct. Right. So, and with diminishing resources, inevitably, you you be, that becomes the entire budget. Um, and so, and then species that you probably could save won't get the budget, or you know, species that might be um, keystone species or ecosystem modifiers or something like that, then could be um, getting could benefit from those resources, but they're not going to get them because you're spending all your time and money on an, on an endangered species that. You know, not 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 saying this for all endangered species. We have a lot of success stories of bringing back the American alligator and the bald eagle, and that list goes on and on and on of of species that we have been able to change their future and keep them from going extinct. But with climate change, there you know, like we were saying, there will be species, there will be winners and losers. Some species will be lost. Yeah, I mean, most most of the species in Hawaii are affected by things like invasive species that can't be controlled. So, so. So the law was designed to deal with human-made problems that are controllable at the local scale or at the national scale. Um, we've got a problem now that that doesn't fit that paradigm. So our, our task is to you know, change the act in a way that allows us to do what needs to be done in the 21st century. And the risk, of course, is that any, any change to the act means the destruction of the act, and that would, that would be tragic. And, and I don't think any environmentalist... Even even progressive, forward-thinking people who who um, know that that the rigidity of the law is hampering our ability to adapt to climate change. I don't think anyone wants to see the law just go away because the consequences of that uh, have the potential to undo you know, 40 or 50 decades. How do you see these challenges that you've brought up being affected by the new administration? Are you worried about? funding cuts to your programs? Are you worried about um, political barriers to, to achieving some of these, these difficult results, these different difficult tasks? I think the, the administration that's now um, in power is, is anti-science. Um, it's it's uh, backward-looking. It's not about the future. It's about recreating a past that never really existed. And it's not um, into collective action. It believes that, that working together at a global level or even at a national level to solve problems that affect everyone is, a, is, is not where they're, that's not where they're from. So, so I, I see that this is a, a, a four years um, that we just have to endure, um, try to maintain what we can and get through it because the future is about something different. It's about change, um, and it's about getting ready for a new world and making it happen, and that's not what this administration is all about. How would you describe collective action? Um, collective action is bringing a lot of um, uh, knowledgeable people from all sectors um, together to, to attack a problem that transcends... Um, the ability of any any one party, um, party in the in the broad sense. So, in terms of 
uh, well, the Paris Agreement is a great example of collective action. It's non-coercive, but it's it's um, it's it's facing a problem together that nobody can solve alone. And so the all of our problems now are at the, such a scale that that's required. Rose just drove up. Yeah, <laughs> you saw her. Okay. the cab. Um, so. You know, that's finding a way to work together on on big problems and create solutions that that can no, not be created with without a huge amount of effort by many different parties. That's the way to solve these problems. That's the way to address them. Given all of the challenges that you've expressed with climate adaptation and island systems, but everywhere really, what advice do you have for? conservationists, people working in the adaptation field, and in particular, the young people who are, are going to be dedicating their careers to conservation? I'd say it is the best thing you could be working on right now. Um, the question is not, is it worth doing? It's, it's like the world is worth saving. It always has been. It always will be. The question is, can we put our attention to exactly the right things that need to be done now and try to shift the paradigm to where it needs to be in, in, in making the maximum use of the resources we have so that the future is better than it would be if we didn't do that. I mean, that's the choice we have is to apply effort, you know, our own effort, our lives, our careers, the, the funds that are available from the, the public and any other source to, to create the you know, less sucky future, as I said before. But actually, that's the best future possible. So it's just it's always been about creating a better future. But now it, the choice is between, uh, you know, better in the sense of what could what will otherwise happen if we don't get our our act together and so but we need the tools to be able to do that both the mental tools the spiritual tools and the legal tools to create the future that needs to be um, envisioned and made manifest by our work um, with the full knowledge that we are in for a huge ride and a lot of surprises I mean, the, the change between now and the end of the century under some of these models is the same as the change between the, the depths of the Ice Age and now. So that's the kind of change we're trying to shepherd these systems through and the species through. And you, so when you see it as that magnitude, you realize things are going to fall away and the future is going to be very different. But what could it be if if we all approach this as the big task at hand and really dedicate our lives to making that world a world where wildlife still exists, um, where people can enjoy it, where natural systems are still functioning? Um, it's it's a, an enormous challenge. There's nothing better to be working on. Everything I've said is as my role as a private citizen and not as anybody affiliated with any government institution. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. If you have requests on topics for future episodes, please let us know. If you would like us to feature your work on adaptation, transformation, or sustainability solutions, we would love to hear from you. Look for more episodes of Climate Hot Seat on 21sustainability.com. Climate change isn't something that one person or one country is going to solve alone. But by working together, we can not only solve present challenges, 
we can create a more just, equitable world to live in at the same time. This is a 21 Sustainability production. Editing by Jason Mitson. Music by Lee Roosevelt. Follow me on Twitter, at Professor Sesser.